Yeah, welcome everyone. Welcome to Fuel Radio. And today uh, joining me is a really good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kirk Austin. Kirk, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. I was thinking about it today that we've, this is embarrassing to even say, but we've known each other for probably 20 plus years, maybe even 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been a very long time, um, probably closer to 25. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And we've had I some good, think, we've had some good times along the way. Hey? Yes, we had way back in the days where we both had a mullet. And, a mullet, uh, yes. I'm, I'm trying to recreate those days. <laughs> mine, mine wouldn't work. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you could do like the, you know, some guys have the, yeah. they got the big bald spot down the middle. and then Pull you it out, comb it over. Yeah. yeah. If you yeah. wore a hat, nobody would know. They may, they may not know the difference. You could yeah. recreate the mullet days. <laughs> that would just be painful. <laughs> so I was excited to see that you had written a book. Uh, your, your wife had posted something on Facebook. That's where I, where I saw it. And, uh, and then knowing what I know about you and knowing your background, uh, writing about buoyancy and building resiliency in kids, I know that that's a good fit. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about your, your background and, and why that is a good, this book uh, probably came out of what you've been doing for the last number of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, the idea of, uh, of buoyancy is, um, uh, it's something for me that is that it, it's a neat concept. I mean, it's the idea of kind of staying afloat and it's got some other features to it. Um, but I started way back um, uh, finishing my bachelor's degree in psychology and thinking that I was fully equipped to take on uh, the nature of uh, work and supporting people. And I ended up working with kind of a young offender set and I got my butt kicked. I had, <laughs> I was just way overmatched. So then I went back and did a master's degree in counseling and thought, okay, now I've got it. I'm ready to go. And uh, really enjoyed working um, alongside the Salvation Army for a while in the same kind of industry, but doing family support work with young offenders and that sort of thing. Um, And as I kind of moved forward with my interests and my uh, kind of my career, I ended up pursuing a doctorate in in psychology, and then I did a diploma in adult education. And I ended up landing in this very sweet spot where I I absolutely love what I do. It doesn't feel like it's too heavy or onerous. Um, So I spent part of my time um, with uh, the BC Cancer Agency, uh, supporting people that have been diagnosed with various forms of of cancer and um, uh, really enjoy that type of work. It's very meaningful. Uh, I spend some time doing private practice, and then I spend kind of a, a big hunk of my time as the training director for a company called Complex Trauma Resources. And the work we do is with um, kind of deeply traumatized kids, and they're kind of embedded in the system and um, have very difficult backstories. Uh, there's a, a field of research called ACEs Research, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, and these kids come from, from a lot of stress. So the concept of buoyancy is, you know, under the weight of adversity and challenge and pressure, um, kind of that top-down pressure that life tends to throw at us, how is it that people stay up? That's the point of writing a book. And so addressing it to, um, ideally, I was writing it t- kind of to the educator or the parent how do you help little ones 
um, learn to find a way of bouncing back and we call that resilience or how do you get them to hold on? We call that tenacity. And some of those features kind of create that umbrella concept of, of buoyancy. So I've been working in it, I think probably for 20 years because the nature of counseling is to help people figure out how to make life better, how to become more buoyant uh, as they kind of live their life choices and kind of move through time with the ones they love. So it ended up in a book. Well, I, I thought of a couple things in preparing for this interview. One was another interview that I did with someone in this, this phrase that this gal stopped, sort of stopped the interview and said this. And, and she said, you know, the human race is a very traumatized species. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, ever since she said that, I think I've been more aware of it, aware of my own trauma and then being aware of, you know, some of the people that I rub shoulders with in recovery and stuff like that and realizing, wow, they're, it's, it's really true. We are a very traumatized yeah. species. And then working on the downtown east side as I got to know people's stories. Um, I, I like what you just said about how do they, how do they stand up? How do they keep, how do people keep going, you know? Yeah. And there was, there was some people that I was just in awe of them really because knowing their background it was like, how do you even show up for work every yeah. day? Or how are you even still alive? You know, yeah. like it was that. And I'm sure you encounter people like that all the time. And I think it's wonderful that you're, I, I think, men, if you can help people when they're kids or just recently having gone through it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great time, I guess, to try and intersect or try and to try to help people at that point. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about the work of Gabor Mate, who, uh, you know, he's a, a medical doctor who um, worked in the downtown east side. He, his whole kind of psychology now, as he moves towards helping kind of that um, really traumatized individual, is to start with compassion and empathy. Like basically asking the question, what happened? And holding space, allowing the person to, if they feel safe enough, to start to articulate but that's the beginning of human connection. It's the beginning of relationship and feeling seen and understood and not judged per se. And, uh, but that's the pathway towards healing. So I love his work. What's that? I said, I, so I love his work. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. And I, I love what you just said there. And, and I was, a, I was around a little bit. I, I've been around a little bit of what you, uh, what you teach as far as working with kids who are traumatized. And now, now it's coming back to me about just the importance of hearing their stories and letting yeah. them, letting children know that they are seen and that it's a non-judgmental environment. Right. And yeah. it's, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. <laughs> as Goodwill hunting made famous for all of us. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or made us aware of. Yeah. So just, just going back to the book just for a second, then we'll dive into the book, but just give us a little bit of backstory on what inspired you to write this book. Um, okay. So when I, when I did my uh, doctoral work, um, probably starting at around the year 2000, I was doing a lot of reading to kind of narrow down my focus on what I wanted to study and I came across a guy by the name of Aaron Antonovsky, who was a medical sociologist who was studying in the world of cancer. And he, um, was, he, he began to notice that there was a certain type of person that would recover more quickly, 
that would spend less time in hospital, that would have uh, better um, kind of out treatment outcomes. And he started to look at the personality characteristics of those people, and he coined a term called salutogenesis. Funky term. All it means, the word salus um, means greeting or well-being. If I say salut to you, if we're holding up a glass of wine, I'm saying to your health. Uh, and genesis is the origins of. And so what he was looking at is what are the origins of health? And so around the year 2000, the American Psych Association, um, I think it was Dr. Martin Seligman at the time, he was asking a similar question. He was saying, of all the money we're spending on psychological research, why are we only looking at psychopathology? We could be looking at what makes life worth living. And psychology kind of did a pivot at that, at that time where it started to consider things that created for lack of a better term, uh, optimal health or human flourishing. My word for it is buoyancy. It's just that concept of what keeps you up. And so um, a lot of work has been done since then. A lot of different um, researchers and psychologists have looked at it. And, you know, we're finding that, um, well, it'll back up. One of the books that he wrote, he was talking about, I think it was in Learned Optimism, or Authentic Happiness, one of his books, he was saying back in the 60s that, that the age, average age of diagnosis of depression and then a prescription being given was, was in the mid-20s. And he said, but it's about you know, 10 years ago when the book was written, it had, it had been reduced to about age 14, where people are diagnosed far earlier. And the medical community, if they diagnose, will typically say, here's a pill. And so part of his motivation was to say, is there a way of helping people to find optimism, joy, happiness, these buoyant characteristics without pharmaceuticals. And so there's this whole world of positive psychology uh, literature that is kind of showing, yeah, actually there's a lot of things we can do without medication. So um, it makes it a, a real robust field for me. I like really love reading in it and, and using some of the ideas and strategies. Makes it fun. It sounds like a more holistic approach, you know, it, it's it reminding me of one of my favorite books right now, you know, I'm really into health is a book called blue zones. And um, so everyone expects his answer to be, it's all about your diet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's in studying these five different zones around the world, uh, they've realized that good, good health is about much more than just about your diet. It's about things that yeah. you talk about. It's about connection and having purpose and value and, yeah. and diet is only one of like eight or nine principles in the whole, the whole thing. So yeah, I, I also like looking for things that where it doesn't involve a pill. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, maybe you could just, generally give us a, you know, a broad definition of buoyancy, and then we'll, we'll dive into the whole subject a bit more. Okay. So, I mean, it, it depends on the, the level of resolution that you want to look at it with. So, I mean, from a physics point of view, buoyancy relates to displacement. So you get this big boat pushing water out of the way, and it holds the boat up. Um, and if you think about buoyancy in a more simple kind of conceptual uh, framework, a kid would say, well, buoyancy is my water wings that keep me afloat or my pool noodle. But from a psychological point of view, um, if you think about all of the downward pressure 
that we feel um, as individuals in the communities that we live in. Uh, if you turn on the television today, you will have uh, no end of um, kind of global pandemic stories or civil unrest stories. And so if you think as a young child growing up and let's say not even being in grade one yet, you don't know the stress of learning to read or the stress of trying to write with your hand for the very first time or learning a computer. Um, all of us will face some kind of adversity or challenge or stressor. And we're trying to, in the educational system, certainly in the psychological world that I work in, is to give people tools to help them to cope better with those downward pressures. Because stress will always be there. So how do you actually stand tall under it? And so that's where I um, kind of talk about the concept of buoyancy as being kind of the um, unsinkability of someone. If you use that boat metaphor or the idea of being irrepressible, uh, that you're able to kind of stand up strong within it. And so when I wrote the book, I was, I'd been doing a lot of reading on kind of the, the early um, Chicago Bulls, people like, um, you know, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Um, and I, there's a, a thing on Netflix right now. I think it's called The Last Dance. That yeah, kind I've of watched, summarizes. It. It's phenomenal. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And so yeah. if you think about the Bulls, they were absolutely dominant. Two three-peats in a 10-year span. But then you also look at people like the LA Lakers, where you've got Kobe and Shaquille and that same group of people who have five rings. And so you've got 11 rings uh, in, 20, in a 20-year span. That's a pretty good record. Well, the common denominator for both teams was their coach, Phil Jackson. He had won um, 11 rings with those two teams, but he had won two rings by himself as a player before. And so if you start thinking about the nature of the glue, well, you look at the coach because every NBA team has really skilled basketball players. Everybody can slam dunk. Everybody can shoot a three-pointer. You look at the coach, and one of the things that he was doing back when no one else was doing it he was teaching about mindfulness. Now, to make it even more simple, it's the nature of kind of suspending judgment and learning to breathe from a place of absolute peace. And he would teach his players to breathe, literally, just learn to breathe so that when they were taking a three-point shot or standing on the free throw line, they could do it from a place of peace and calm, which actually allowed them to shoot more effectively. So, what I did was I simply said, okay, I love that metaphor of breathing. And so if you look at elements of buoyancy through the framework of breathe, well, you'd have bravery, you'd have resilience, you'd have endurance, you'd have acceptance, you'd have tenacity, you'd have hope, and you'd have excellence. And each of those are characteristics that on their own help someone to stay more buoyant, more up, if you will. And those are things that it can actually be taught to people. So if I ask, you know, if I ask you to do something brave, well, the common denominator for every person on the planet that has to do something brave is they have to face something that's scary, which means that they have a common physiological reaction. They'll have a common pushback where their survival mechanism is trying to prevent them from charging into the fire, the burning building, the whatever that's scary for them. But if they can learn to actually persevere and press in anyways, well, then they're learning the skill of being brave. And that's one of the things that 
every person has to learn if they're going to be an effective or flourishing human being, because we're always going to have scary things. Yeah, it, it seems like one of the emphasis of the book is uh, you, you, you have to lean into this a little bit in order to be, you have to lean into life a little bit in order to be buoyant, you know, and as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, sometimes I just want my stressors to just go away, yeah. <laughs> but that my, I don't lean into them. I actually will numb them or try to run away or deny them or ignore them or yeah. whatever. But what you're, you're what you're really saying in the book is that's, not the strategy you don't i i don't i haven't had a chance to really go through it very the book very carefully but right um do you talk about what the opposite of buoyancy is or what yep. what ways in which we we strategies that don't work <laughs> yeah oh absolutely so there's um brene brown i i call her saint brene um, <laughs> she's amazing she has her her finger on the pulse of something that is quite universal and so her research is about vulnerability and all of her books are writing about vulnerability, the need for it, but also our avoidance of it. And so if you think about vulnerability as, as being that space that we all have that feels a little raw, a little unprotected, well, we have ways of armoring up because we don't want to face that feeling that might leave us exposed or rejectable or, you know, feeling guilt or shame of some kind. Um, and so Shelley Gable who is another psychologist researching in this field of positive psychology talks about um, active and uh, active and passive um, response responses. So th there's, I, I frame it through the lens of building and breaking. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling exposed, my vulnerability is feeling exposed. I can passively um, break my, my buoyancy by doing nothing by avoiding, by drinking, by taking, you know, over my prescription drugs or just numbing out with TV or, or whatever it is. Um, or I can actively break it where I kind of throw up my hands. If I've got to give a public speech, this is one of the examples in the book. Uh, kids got to give a public speech. If they self-sabotage, if they yell at the teacher to get kicked out of class, well, you can actively break that buoyancy or you can also build it. And so passively building it is where you, you might be kind of fantasizing, what would, it, what would it be like to give that public speech? Or if you walk into the room that you're giving the speech in and just getting used to kind of the feeling of the atmosphere, or you can actively build. And that's where you kind of write out your speech, you speak it out, you memorize it, you do it in front of people. And so you, there are ways of building and there are ways of breaking. And so if you think about bravery, that the idea that we have to face something that's difficult, um, people have to make kind of a, a, a conscious effort. Am I going to lean into this or am I going to try to avoid the pain? And buoyancy comes by actually having to address the things that need to be addressed. There's a, there's a guy right now, you're making me think of him, who's been interviewed quite a bit on podcasts, and he has a book out called Goggins. Have you have you come across him at all? No. Uh, is it Dave Goggins? David Goggins. I think okay. it's David, yeah. 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 If you get a chance to watch one of his interviews, it's incredible. He was a Navy SEAL. He weighed right. like 300 pounds when he yeah. tried to get in. Um, yeah. Was practically illiterate. And, um, you know, you're reminding me of him right now. Is He's just 
he, he, that's what he's all about is just leaning into the pain. He will not withdraw from, from pain. And he's saying, when you are 40, when, when you feel like you're spent, you're probably only 40% spent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think one of the things that I, I think I watched one of his YouTubes, yeah. he's, he's a take no prisoners kind of guy. It's like, there oh, are no yeah. excuses that are big enough to stop you from doing the thing you need to do. Right. One of his theories is take souls. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. a little extreme. That's a bit much. <laughs> that's, that's typical. Uh, what a soldier might say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the point, the story that he tells to, to um, illustrate that is uh, I think it was the second or third time that he was going through seal training. I think it was his third time when he finally got through and they were doing this exercise where they're supposed to hold a, a boat or something over their heads. And it's just, super painful and he encouraged the rest of his mates to actually start pressing it and and just going and i forget what they yelled but they started pressing it and his hmm. thing was he he just watched the the senior guys that were obviously trying to break these guys and he just said that was in the, he could see it in their eyes that they were like oh my goodness we, we're not going to be able to break these guys like they yeah. have They've got it. They've got more than we. That's than we a great knew. story. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Yeah, that's a great story. And, but really, the main thing is, and and I think how he's encouraged me is, and and you're doing the same thing with with what you're talking about is just rather than withdrawing is is leaning into the leaning into the tough stuff, leaning yeah. into life. Really, you know. Yeah. So there's, there's a, you think about a physiological response to, to adversity. Mm -hmm. So if I have to do something that's scary, my body will give me some kind of a feedback. It's that right. sense of fear, the knot in my pit of my stomach. But there's also a cognitive piece where I, I give myself a narrative. Like, I, I'm never going to be able to do this. This is going to be too hard for me. And so what, what Goggins is, is kind of on, I think he's on point, is that your self-talk is really important because you will, you know, whether you say you can't, whether you say you can, you're right. Because you will respond to what you're telling yourself. So part of the part of the book that I've, the back end of the book, um, is really just talking about buoyant beliefs versus um, kind of your critical comments. Because we can always give ourselves critical comments. It's the critic that sits on your shoulder and tells you, how much of a loser you are um, or how much you can't do and searching for the golden nugget, that buoyant thing that says, no, I can do one more step. I can do one more thing. Um, those things become really important in trying to build this kind of characteristic of buoyancy. Yeah. Fantastic. I keep switching off my mic here because I've had a relief blower outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm trying okay. to be conscious of, of turning that off and on. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, acceptance is one of your points. That's also a recovery, <laughs> a re recovery point. I'll just yeah. quote you here. Um, you say uh, that things will be okay. That we can embrace the challenge, or integrate its lessons. Do, do, do you want to just expand a little bit on? On acceptance, I think it's such yeah. a key key element to to buoyancy and, sure. and to life. Yeah. So one of the things that I tried to do um, with the book using the acronym Breathe um, is is to tell a story about a person who embodied the characteristic. 
So under acceptance, I told the story uh, uh, about a woman named Alana, um, uh, Alana Nichols. She was 17-year-old snowboard kid, loved to go fast, uh, loved kind of the, the curves, the cornering, and loved the tricks. And at one point, she tried a backflip. And she recalls waking up with people trying to get her to get up and, and move, and she couldn't. Well, she'd broken her back. So you know, at that moment in time, you're faced with an adversity that is life changing. So you realize you're never going to walk again. You're, it's going to, it's going to radically alter the way you do your life. You're probably never going to snowboard again. Well, acceptance, the way that I, I kind of frame it in the book is that idea of making peace with, like, how do you take something really difficult and, and become okay with it? How do you integrate it rather than becoming overpowered by it? Because it'd be very easy to slip into something like a depression or to just give up or to, you know, just kind of want to hole up in a room and, and um, kind of stay there. Or you find a way of making peace with that thing. And so what she did was she said, you know what, this is not going to keep me down. I, I need to find something else. So in rehab, she watched some women that were playing wheelchair basketball and she thought, hmm, that looks fun. And so as she learned the skill of sitting in the chair, using her upper body to kind of propel herself, learning the rules of the game, um, it wasn't quick. It was doing the work to get there. Eventually, she became quite good at wheelchair basketball and got a scholarship to a university. And while she continued to play, she was noticed by the U.S. Um, uh, Paralympic uh, wheelchair uh, basketball team, well, they ended up winning a gold medal. Um, I think it was in the, oh, I can't remember which Olympics it was. I do know, I, I think it was 2006 that she or 2008, she won that. But always loving the mountain, she thought, huh, I wonder if there's a way that I could actually use my wheelchair and ski the way that she liked going down the mountains. Well, she found mono skiing, which is a way of using a sit down chair that's anchored to skis. And again, she had to learn how to go down, how to stop, how to not crash and kill herself. And then as she learned to do that, she got really good at it and started to compete at high levels in um, kind of para, para sports, para skiing. Well, she competed here in Vancouver in the 2010 Olympics and ended up winning a bronze, a silver, and two golds in kind of the slalom, the super G um, which is quite phenomenal. Now, if you think about the starting point of this woman, at 17 years old, she could have thrown up her hands and just said, I'm, I'm done, my life is over. Or she found a way of kind of making peace with what had happened, kind of embracing it, integrating it into who she saw herself to be. And then as a result of that, kind of embraced life and went after it. I think she's now, uh, she's done with Olympic sports. I think she's, she's, doing surfing a bunch <laughs> of stuff related to surfing it's just very cool she's yeah. not seeing her uh limitations as limitations she's trying to maximize uh, what she can do with her body yeah which is a very compelling story yeah great story. kids love yeah. kids love stories and if you yeah. can tell a story that kind of holds their attention well then you can unpackage the meaning of it so that's yeah. kind of why i talked about her uh mm -hmm. in the book yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up kids because it is about building resiliency in kids. Maybe you could just say a couple things 
about that? Like, how can we do that for our, for our, for our children? When you were talking about bravery, we used to have this saying with our kids, everybody's a different kind of brave, (laughs) but, but sometimes I wonder if we maybe should have um, gently pushed our kids a little bit into some things that they were, that, that they were afraid of, you know, like we have one child that no problem getting out on stage and performing and all that, kind of, but there was other things that she's quite, you know, doesn't, doesn't never wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I won't name which child that is, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but sometimes I wonder if it might've been good for her to do some more of those things that, that she was, uh, afraid of or talk about kids a little one thing you did right was to say um everybody is a different kind of brave yeah because if you know if i look at other people that i know and i compare myself which is an automatic thing that my my critic does Mm -hmm. if i think oh i'm not as brave as them well then i'll always live under kind of that that specter of feeling less than Mm-hmm. But if I think, no, I'm, I'm just brave in a different way, well, then it normalizes for me the opportunity of trying something. So there's a, a psychologist by the name of Carol Dweck uh, who wrote a book on mindsets. And her whole thing is on growth mindset. So think about it like this. Um, she looks at little kids and she says, here's a task you've never seen it before. You're going to fail at it. A kid who has a fixed mindset will go, oh, I, I can't, I can't do it because the stakes are too high. Their vulnerability uh, is too exposed. The stakes are too high. They don't want to take the risk because it'll mean that they're a failure. Kids that have a growth mindset will say, oh, I've never seen this before. I'm going to fail at this. This is fantastic <laughs> because yeah. they see it as an opportunity to learn. Mm. So yeah. if you think about bravery, first thing you're going to do that's brave as a kid is pull yourself up on a table and to try to take one step. That's bravery. And you're going to fall on your bum. And then you're going to try it again and you're going to fall and try it again. You'll fall, but eventually you'll find your rhythm and it becomes automatic. And then you're off to the races and you're running. So it's that progressive, just do your best. You're going to learn more today. You're going to learn more tomorrow. Just keep going, keep trying. And eventually you get there. The problem that we have as kids is at some point we become self-conscious. So a little kid that's walking, they're not judging the, the, the look of their stride or their gait. They're just walking towards the thing that they're interested in. Right. But the moment that we become self-conscious, I worry that I walk differently than the other kids that I know, or that what if I fall in front of them and it could be embarrassing. And so it tends to shut us down. So if you're able to normalize for your kids, you're brave, but just in a different way. So be as brave as you can. Mm -hmm. Well, you're giving them the opportunity of saying, I'm brave, but I may not be as brave as I need to yet. And it's that yet that allows you to kind of look to the future with a little bit of hope and optimism to say, I'll get there, Mm. which is how people build stuff. You talk a lot about breath and mindfulness in the book. You know that that's one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) I mean, right off the top, you were saying how uh, Phil Jackson taught his players to breathe. And I'm wondering if you yeah. just expand on that a little bit. What, and I think you do that with your work in the, in the hospital as well. Aren't you? Yeah. With the patients, you're teaching them mindfulness and taking Absolutely. them through mindfulness practices. Yeah. So what happens with um, 
someone is diagnosed with some nasty form of cancer, quite often what happens is their head starts working in double time uh, because they're afraid of having to um, go into a machine that's going to give them radiation or they're afraid of what's going to happen with their um, chemotherapy because, you know, they might get quite sick. And so as the, the mind is busy and stressed, their body starts to tighten up. They may not even be aware of it. And so as they're holding their tension, they experience more pain. They, have, uh, they experience a little bit more anxiety because they're breathing differently. So when you breathe and you're stressed or anxious, most people will breathe just from their upper lung. And if you do this with kids, if you say, show me what scared looks like, what they'll do is they'll kind of do a face, but their body will close in on itself like they're turtling. Yeah, yeah. What they're really doing is they're then breathing from a very upper lung, shallow space. And so by teaching adults at the cancer agency or teaching little kids, open your body. Uh, I want you to kind of listen to my voice. So you're giving the brain something to think about other than their thoughts. And you simply tell them to slowly breathe in and slowly breathe out. It calms their physiology. So they let go of some of their tension. If you give them an alternative thought. So, um, Richard Rohr is, is one of my favorite authors. You know, he, he is, um, uh, as you know, he's a, I think he's a Franciscan who talks about the human breath. He goes, there, there is no Muslim breath or Buddhist breath or Christian breath. Yeah. There is a human breath. And we all breathe the same way, slowly in and slowly out. And so by, by helping people to know that by breathing deeply, they, they can calm by if they think about something like the word peace, if we use that as a thought, that as they breathe in, they're just trying to enjoy the breath and on their exhale, they can say the word peace quietly in their mind without ever saying it out loud. Just that the discipline of doing that can actually calm people down, which is something that can promote buoyancy. Because the more relaxed you are, the more like as stress is pushing down on you, if you're able to relax, you're taking a break just from that top down pressure, whatever it is. So it's teaching people to discipline themselves to do it and in the discipline to relax because that's how they can get through the days. Yeah. Awesome. And there's, I mean, if people look, think, look things like that up on breathing and there's all kinds of exercises that oh, you yeah. can do and they've been shown to really help deal with stress. Haven't they? Yeah. 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 Richard well, Rohr, one of my favorite videos from him is on silence and he talks about towards the end of it, he talks about breath and using the word Yahweh. And it's just, it's, he tells this beautiful story. I think it was almost a, it might've been in a, to an audience that wasn't a, a it, I don't think it was a church or faith related thing. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, yeah, he was speaking to a group of scientists and the scientists talked about, the breath and, and using yeah. your breath. And it was, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful story. I won't, I won't go into it now. <laughs> you know, but the um, thing I, the thing yeah. I like about him is so science is always good to look at the hard uh, provable things. And they yeah. look at things that are soft as not relevant, but so that the idea of teaching breathing would, would be typically couched in kind of that Buddhist or that religious or that the context of the non-science. And what we're now finding is actually science is learning the value of breathing. So John Kabat-Zinn is at, uh, I think it's the 
Madison, Wisconsin University, and they're doing scientific studies on stress hormones. And they're proving that people who learn to breathe differently, quietly, etc., actually have less physiological stress at a hormonal level. Um, they're even looking at things like telomeres, like the ends of your genes, and finding that people who are um, more relaxed have longer telomeres because they, they unravel as you get older. And it's a sign of, of um, kind of your health decay. So talking about tools, breathing and mindfulness is definitely one of the tools for buoyancy, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's great. You mentioned the skier, and I I know that you're 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 quite a jock, and <laughs> you love playing sports, and so do I. Um, and there's sports is a great example of of resiliency. Hey, when you're talking about the the bulls. You know, the, the other factor when I watched that, I didn't realize what a badass um, Michael Jordan was. Holy cow. Was he, yeah. he, was, he wanted to win. <laughs> you, think, you think he was competitive? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> competitive with a capital, all in caps. <laughs> yeah, all caps. <laughs> yeah. Um, just if you, could, if you wouldn't mind just telling maybe one other story of, a, of an athlete that, uh, that stood out to you as you were doing your your research and thinking about this, this subject. Okay. Uh, some of my heroes, um, I, I would probably talk, this is in the tenacity chapter of mm. uh, Dick and Rick Hoyt. So from where we live, people like Terry Fox, they, they would be a normal name. Um, uh, who was the guy that was in the wheelchair man in motion? Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is another guy that we would, yeah. we would identify as kind of having that tenacious kind of drive. Well, Dick and Rick Hoyt uh, are from Boston in the U.S., and not many of us would know them, but I, I find their story absolutely compelling. Mm -hmm. When you think about the strength of the human spirit of staying up rather than letting life crush you. So um, Dick and Rick, Rick, Rick is the son, and he was born with cerebral palsy, an extreme form of cerebral palsy where he could not communicate the, the first couple of years of life. And uh, Dick, the dad, and, and the mom, they, they knew that he was smart because would, he, would, he would follow them with their eyes and he would seem to understand when they were talking about things. When he got old enough, they got a computer that would allow the younger child, uh, Rick, to, um, to communicate. And they found he, he's actually really smart. Mm. So they enrolled him in school. They allowed him to um, participate with other kids in, in modified learning, et cetera. But what ended up happening is that at one day Rick comes home and he says to his parents, Hey, there's a kid at my school that got injured. We're doing a fundraiser. Can I run in a race? Well, that poses a problem because Rick is in a wheelchair. <laughs> so Dick, the dad goes, son, we're going to do it. And so they, they modified this little thing. And at the time, dad is probably 40, close to 40. He's not super athletic and he's out of shape. So he, he starts training and they end up doing this little fundraiser and it was fantastic. And so when they get home at the end of the day, Rick says to his dad through the computer, dad, when we run, I feel like I am not disabled. Mm. Just like, Oh wow. And so dad <laughs> then takes it on himself to say, you know what? We're going to start doing this. So dad starts training and they ended up doing over the course of their 32 year career running in 1130 uh, endurance events. Like, 
endurance events. These are long races. They ended up yeah. doing the Boston Marathon 32 years kind of in, in, a, in a running. They did a triathlon. So imagine this, the dad is pushing a wheelchair with his son in it because the son can't run. Mm -hmm. um, he's putting his son in a boat and swimming miles to be able to do this thing. As I think that the Ironmans are, are almost two and a half miles um, by, by swimming 112 miles biking. So they had a modified bike yeah, with a, a container on the front and, and, and the son marathon. could sit in it in a marathon. <laughs> and, uh, at one point, they did 72 marathons. That's like 42, mi 42 yeah, kilometers um, each time. Yeah. So the dad did that year after year after year mm. with his son coming along, hooping and hollering, having the best time of his life. And they did that into his 70s. His son was, I think, in his 50s by the time that they retired. And they, I think their last Boston Marathon was 2014, so just a few years ago. And so they did that as a, they called their, themselves Team Hoyt. Yeah. And what they wanted to do is to raise awareness of athletics for people who were differently able. So the disabled person who could not do, but they wanted to create opportunities and visibility. And at one point they crossed the U.S. by bike and by running in 45 days, just for fun of it, <laughs> just to raise awareness. Yeah. So at the end of their career, Boston, um, at the, um, at the Boston site of the Boston Marathon, they ended up making a bronze sculpture of the two of them with their motto. And their motto was basically, yes, you can. Wow. It's that idea. If you're tenacious enough, if you can hold on and keep pressing on to the things that are important to you, you, you can. Mm -hmm. like that, for me, that's a beautiful story of kind of the father, the son, and uh, tenacity. And it's a story that needs to be heard. So it sounds like, like, what are some of the things that really matter when it comes to this? It sounds like it's, it's a, I hear you saying it's, it's, it's a choice in a lot of ways. It's, it's mindset. As, as we kind of bring this in for a landing, what are some of the key elements to, to buoyancy? What can people do? What can people do from, from a very high view? Yeah. If you think about having uh, adversity and challenges and stressors in your life, there are times where you'll encounter something that is a bit fearful. It feels overwhelming. Well, you're going to need bravery in order to kind of face it. What about when you're enduring something that is really hard and you're kind of under the impressive weight of it? You think about kind of a chronic illness. Well, you're going to need to find something within or cultivate something within that has you endure in a way that keeps the world's um, hopeful, happy, up. Otherwise, you're just enduring and tolerating, and it's, it's, it's brutal. Um, so part of it is learning what's going on when you're facing your stressors, identify what they are. So I used a, a, a bit of a, an acronym in the book. I call it your test worksheet, and they, each of those things stand for something. So the T would stand for your trial. What's the adversity? What's the challenge? What's the thing that you have to face? Then the E is, what are the emotions that you're feeling? A lot of people, believe it or not, when they're feeling something, they're not aware that they're feeling it. So if they're afraid, their body is communicating. They're just not aware of it. So we'd say, what's the emotion? The S is, what's the sensation? Where do you feel it? So when I feel a lot of stress, quite often it's this shoulder starts to lock up a little bit. And 
all halfway through my day going, why do I have a headache? I need to take, oh, I have stress in the shoulder. And then I have to take actions to um, kind of loosen up my muscles. And, and then the last one is, the last T is your thoughts. Well, what are they? Are they buoyant or are they critical? So if you're able to um, kind of identify what your body is communicating, if you're able to understand what your head is thinking about this trial that you have to face, well, then you can make relevant changes. So instead of being the self-critic, there's a psychologist by the name of Kristen Naff. She's brilliant. If you ever did a, uh, a Google query, Kristen Neff exercises, her whole psychology is on mindful self-compassion. So I can go through life as a critic, or I can go through life as a perfectionist. By definition, I will never, I will never meet the grade if I'm a perfectionist. Her whole thing is, how can you be kind to yourself? How can you have, actually have compassion on yourself? And so on her, uh, her website, she's got a bunch of free exercises that are essentially breathing, and telling yourself something that is buoyant in nature, like you are loved, you are kind, you can do this. Um, so it, 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 it holds elements of all of those things. Yeah, excellent. I, and I was, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, in the back of your book, you have some exercises as well. So I think it's great to have some questions. I love practical things. And um, the one exercise I see that you ask questions about exploring your feelings, thoughts, and beliefs when, when you're going through, you know, when you, when you're maybe facing some trials or afraid yeah. of something. And um, yeah. So, so awesome. Um, what can, or uh, yeah, I just want really want to encourage people to, to get the book. It's, it's really practical and has some great, some great stories. Um, I found it on on Amazon. Do you know if it's is it on in on Amazon in both Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, it's it's uh, on the Amazon uh, platform in Canada, the U.S. I think it's also in Europe. So mm-hmm. there's there's two books. One is called Buoyancy: Building Resilient Kids, and that's okay. that's the book that parents could read to kids. But then I built a, a companion um, curriculum that is called Lesson Plan. So it's the same title buoyancy building resilient kids but lesson plans is at the end of it and that one is is more for directly applied um curricular activities that schools can use so there's 10 of them in the book and um fun to write fun to do (laughs) awesome actually i don't want to jump to the very i there was i wanted to make a comment and and potentially another question but i love that you brought up self-compassion i mean if, if some people know my story, I've been talking a lot about this for the last few years as I, I've been pra- I had been practicing, um, you know, mindfulness as we talked about and contemplation. And I had this epiphany one day that I really don't love myself all that much. Right. <laughs> and somehow I had missed that element that, you know, if you're doing those types of things, make sure that you add some compassion to it as well and and you we can give ourselves compassion i guess i was kind of always expecting it to come from an outside for you know force which our source which it it is there and we do experience that sometimes but we can give that to ourselves all the time if we want to have you heard of um a woman by the name of dr edith eager no no. oh you need to get her her book she's got two books so one is called um the choice 
And the, the latest one is called The Gift. This woman is 90 years old. Oh, wow. And she wrote her first book. She's 92 now. She wrote her first book at 90. <laughs> She's an Auschwitz survivor oh. who navigated the difficulty of coming out of post-traumatic stress, going into psychology, finally getting to the point where she's helping others. And she writes a beautiful book on the nature of our choices. Um, her latest book is The Nature of Being a Gift. So she would say loving yourself is one of the most essential things that you can do for yourself and humanity. She'd say it's not narcissistic. It's mm. not, it's not um, a toxic thing to love yourself. It's actually an embracing of who you are, right. knowing that you, you are a gift to those around you. Mm -hmm. So get that one. <laughs> Excellent. I'll look it up. I'll also put that in the show notes. If people are listening on iTunes or wherever they are, are, awesome. are on YouTube, we'll, put, we'll find some links to all of the things that you said. We'll include some links in, in our show notes and stuff like that. Excellent. So, well, thanks for joining me today, Kirk. It's always great to uh, to catch up and and to talk. And uh, I, I love our conversations. And sometimes it takes having to <laughs> doing something like this in order to to do that. We're both so busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for having me on. I am a big fan. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs>